If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one provided there for you in the pew. And let's turn together to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, and this morning we're going to make our way uh, through the entirety of this chapter uh, as we very quickly, it seems, make our way to the end um, of this book. Uh, those of you who are guests here this morning, we've been traveling through the book of Daniel uh, over the past uh, couple of months, and we have just continued to see this overarching theme, which we will continue to see this morning in this passage, and that is of the sovereignty of God. Uh, God's power and God's glory and His sovereignty has displayed not just in the life of Daniel, but in the entirety of human history. Uh, that what Daniel was seeing and what Daniel had a glimpse of uh, was what was going to happen in world events for hundreds of years after him, all the way up uh, until the arrival of Jesus uh, in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. God revealed to Daniel uh, every single thing uh, that was going to happen as far as the world was concerned and, and the leaders that were going to be rising and falling, rising and falling, and then the trouble and the tribulation that the people of God were going to be facing. Uh, there's, there's perhaps not any other passage in Scripture that so clearly lays out the events of human history that have been fulfilled as what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks in Daniel's chapters 10, 11, and 12. Uh, 10, 11, and 12 are pretty much one entire unit. Uh, 10 gives us the glimpse this morning of Daniel receiving the vision. And then 11 and 12 are the, the totality of that vision of what he's told, again, about the unfolding of human history from his day up until the arrival of Jesus. This morning, I want you to focus on this one thought, though. And that thought is that there is an unseen realm of activity that ties in with everything we see happening physically around us, everything that we are able to see tangibly uh, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to conflict, when it comes to trial and tribulation. If we're everything that we see physically, there is an unseen battle going on that we cannot see. And so I want you to keep that thought in mind because that really is the crux of what Daniel is being taught here in this passage this morning. So if you found your way there to Daniel chapter 10, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is the Word of the Lord. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. and did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all during the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a pure gold of Euphus. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And then behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you, and stand upright, for 
would send to you. And when he had spoken this word, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? Now as for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except Michael, your prince. You can be seated this morning. <coughs> Chapters 10, 11, and 12 contain the final vision that was given to Daniel. Inside of this vision, we're going to see that there are really three purposes that God is revealing these things to Daniel. Uh, number one, it's a revelation of the difficulties that are going to arise for God's people. Uh, again, in 11 and 12, we're going to see some challenges that the people of God are going to face, not just in the rebuilding of the temple there in Jerusalem, uh, but for the entirety of their experience as they move towards the day when Jesus would be born. Secondly, there's an assurance of God's control or his sovereignty and ultimate victory. Because again, despite the battles and the trials that the people of God are going to face, ultimately God is in total control. Nothing's happening outside of the divine permission and allowance of God. And in the end, God will always see to it that his plan and purposes are accomplished. And ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, God will always bring victory to his people. And thirdly, there's again that I referenced earlier, an understanding of things that are not seen. Now verse 1 tells us that this vision, when Daniel had this, was in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now Cyrus was the one who was reigning after the Persians had defeated the Babylonians. Now in the first year of Cyrus's reign, it was when he had decreed, there in the book of Ezra, to the Jews that they could return back. He sent them back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. And as they got there, the Jews began to do the work, and they actually rebuilt the altar, but then they began to encounter some difficulties. Obviously, uh, restoring a destroyed city was not easy in its own right, but they began to face challenges and obstacles along the way. And then about three years in, so around the same time that Daniel was having this vision, Cyrus had to leave to go fight a battle, and he put his son as regent over the, re over the, the region. And his son actually forbade the Jews from continuing the work there in Jerusalem. And not long after that, the people began to be frustrated, and so they ceased the work entirely in rebuilding the city. So three years into what they had been waiting over 70 years to do, they stopped. 
And they would actually not begin work again until about 15 years later when, um, when the work would resume. Now the question is, is if all of the people are back, uh, or many of the people are back in Jerusalem, then why is Daniel still now here in Babylon? Now there's a couple of thoughts for this. Number one is, again, probably because of his age. At this point in time, Daniel is probably in his mid to late 80s, perhaps early 90s, depending upon uh, when he, how old he was when he came to Babylon. So Daniel is a man advanced in age. It's a long journey. And also the understanding that once they got there, the work is going to be very laborsome and tiresome. It was not the work for a man who was 85, perhaps 90 years old. And Daniel understood that. But perhaps the most promising aspect of this was that Daniel knew that his task in Babylon was not finished. So he wasn't going to give up and leave what God had called him to do, to go do another good and godly thing because he knew that God wasn't finished with him there yet. He still had great work to do. And we can see that revealed in what opens up here in chapter 10. Because God was keeping Daniel in Babylon to do a great work. And that work ultimately was the intercession on behalf of the people who were there in Jerusalem. An intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel. So I want you to first notice that Daniel's life is characterized by concern for God's people. A concern for God's people. Look there in, in uh, verses 2 and 3. I actually go back to verse 1. He says, The vision came to him, the vision was revealed, a message, and it was true and one of great conflict. And he understood the message and had a great understanding of the meaning. So as this message comes to Daniel, Daniel again we know is a man who, uh, who focused intently on serving God, focused intently on hearing from God. And so this message arrives, and this is one of the, for the now for the, for the first time, this is one of those messages that comes that Daniel immediately on the outset understands the premise of what he's being shown. Remember the two previous times he needed a, a deeper interpretation of that, and then God sent the angel Gabriel to come to him. But Daniel understood the message, and what he saw was that it was one of great conflict or one of great war. He saw that there was going to be difficulty for the people of God. He saw that things were going to be unfolding that were going to make it challenging not only to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem, but to rebuild the entire city. And then following that, perhaps and most likely in Daniel's mind, his thought had been, well, once we get back to Jerusalem... Once the temple is restored and we can begin to worship again, once the city walls are rebuilt and the city is established, we're going to be okay. But what Daniel saw in this vision was that it was never going to be okay for God's people. They were always going to be facing difficulty. There was always going to be one nation or another coming against them, battling against them, fighting against them. And what is the reason for that? Well, it's going to be revealed to us later on, but we can stop by saying here that ultimately we understand that the conflicts that were raging against the nation of Israel were not entirely just physical conflicts. It was not just the war between one nation and the nation of Israel. Ultimately, behind the scenes, it is a war between that which is good and holy and pure and that which is wicked and evil. There is a spiritual concept to all of these things. Because the Jerusalem and Israel represented God. It represented the people of God. This is the, the earthly representation of God's presence on the earth at this time. So the reason that the nation of Israel was always under such attack is because Satan was doing whatever he could through physical kingdoms to destroy and to tear down the nation of Israel. So Daniel's heart was overwhelmed. 
Right? He saw this. He understood this. He knew what was getting ready to happen to his people. And so notice what he did. Verse 2, it says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. And I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all, and the entire three weeks were completed. Daniel did what we would exactly expect Daniel to do, because it's what he had done over and over again through this book. When faced with difficulty, when faced with something he did not understand, when faced with something that was overwhelming to him, either physically or spiritually or mentally, Daniel prayed. Daniel went to the Lord. And here he emphasizes the fact that not just prayer, but he actually was fasting and, and submitting his body to things that would cause him to remember and think about what was happening to those people who were in Jerusalem. Notice it says he didn't eat any tasty food or meat or wine for his mouth, so he abstained from all the pleasures of this life, uh, perhaps just eating a very uh, ascetic diet, you know, something very bland. It doesn't say he abstained from all food. He just says the tasty food or meat or wine. So he was subjecting himself to that, much like those who were back in Jerusalem because there weren't many resources. They would have been struggling to find good things to eat. And then there in verse 3, it says he did not use any ointment. This is talking about lotion. Think about where Babylon was. It's a very dry climate. And no doubt they were using types of ointment to rub on their skin to keep their skin moisturized. But here Daniel says, I've abstained from all those things. Why? Because he wanted to identify with the suffering of God's people. Now, Daniel doesn't know all of those who are back in Jerusalem. Because he didn't know every single person uh, who was there in exile in Babylon. He probably knew some of them who had gone back. As Daniel saw this vision of things yet to come, Daniel would not know all of those people. But Daniel's heart is one characterized by love for God's people. Remember what 1 Corinthians tells us. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. The scripture teaches us that as Christians, as God's people, that we are not isolated enclaves of, of, of groups. It's not Barberville Baptist Church and First Baptist Church. It's not Barberville Baptist Church and Grace Baptist Church somewhere else. No, we are all, if we are Christians, if we are faithful followers of God, we are all part of the same body of Christ. And we should love one another. We should care for one another. We should mourn with one another. We should rejoice with one another. And ultimately, we should be praying for one another. Daniel's concern here was so great that not only was he willing to pray, he was willing to subject his own body to fasting and, and mourning because he was so overwhelmed about what he saw was going to happen to God's people. This was a serious commitment to prayer. And Daniel wasn't just fasting for a day. Daniel fasted for three weeks. He was in mourning for three weeks as he thought about what was going to happen to God's people. We are one body of Christ. And so we should care for one another. That includes all of us in this room this morning as members of this church. That includes our friends who maybe live locally by who are members of, of the body of Christ. But that includes missionaries and the persecuted church around the world. As we think about it this morning, we, we prayed for Kelly and Georgia this morning in our prayer. Are we praying for them? Are we thinking about what they are going through as they're serving the Lord in a difficult place? 
We think about that on a regular basis. Does our hearts grieve as we understand that there are times when they face financial challenges or perhaps spiritual battles as they're there in Cambodia and in Vietnam? There's a persecuted church that's greater today than at any other time in human history. There are people who every Sunday morning when it comes time to gather, gather in secret in places like North Korea and China and Indonesia. They have to hide because if they're found out, they'll be killed. There are Christians right now in prison because, only because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Do we pray for them? Do we mourn with them? Do we weep with them as they suffer for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If not, we should. We should be thinking about them. And, and again, we can't obviously call them up on the phone to encourage them. We obviously, for most of them, can't write a letter or send a card. But the one thing that we can do is pray for them. You think about that. We can't just pick up a letter. We don't know who of some of those Christians are who are languishing in prison. But you know who does know? God knows. And as we pray, and we ask God to guide and direct our prayers, He allows our prayers to be effective on their behalf. That we are interceding for them to the throne of God. He is doing His work through the means of prayer through us as we lift up those who we don't even know. Daniel consecrated himself to pray for the people of God. Because he understood God's purposes. He understood what God was doing and what God was going to do through the nation of Israel. But here Daniel is praying for something that he's never going to see himself. Daniel here is praying for people that he will never meet, for a temple he will never visit, and for the ultimate victory of a kingdom on this earth when Christ comes that he will never see with his own physical eyes, but yet he's so committed to the glory of God that he's willing to pray and fast and subject his body because he wants to see God's purposes accomplished. Daniel prays by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 emphasizes this fact of how the Christian life has been laid out through human history of those who live their life by faith. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing. In fact, I would suggest that most often we can't see what God is doing around us. But we trust Him because we know that by faith He works and operates and does what He wills and what He pleases. Daniel had a long-term view of the kingdom of God. And it developed out of this concern for God's people. He was burdened by them, so he prayed for them. Now notice, secondly, that as Daniel was praying, as he was interceding to the Lord on behalf of his people, notice secondly here that he is visited by a powerful guest. A powerful guest comes to visit Daniel there in verses 4. He says, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. His body was like a barrel, and his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like a tumult. And Daniel prayed, he is now again met by a heavenly visitor. In the previous two chapters, we saw the angel Gabriel coming to Daniel to bring intercession to him and to bring uh, wisdom and understanding to what is going on and what's been ready to happen. Now there's several things about this visitor. We notice it's described his, his apparel, dressed in linen and girded with gold. 
It describes his face as lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and his feet like bronze, and his voice is like a trumpet or like a thunder. But the question we would ask is, is who is this visitor? Now, commentators, if you read 13 commentators, you're going to find about 13 different opinions on who they think this visitor is. Some think that it's Gabriel. Uh, that again, it's just a different description of the angel Gabriel who's come to visit Daniel. Some perhaps say that it's Michael, the archangel. Some refer to it and think that it's a, a, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, as we've seen in other places in the scripture. And they say so because if you go to Revelation chapter 1, as John is describing Christ there in Revelation chapter 1, the similarities uh, seem to line up very clearly uh, with how this figure is described. One commentator points to the angels there in the, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, because again, the descriptions line up there uh, pretty closely with how Daniel describes this visit. We don't know who it is. And in fact, really, the, the exact identity of this visitor is not as important as the lesson that this person teaches. Um, I, I would fight against the, the description of him as being a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus because of what the visitor is going to tell Daniel in just a few verses later, and we'll highlight that when we get there. But again, no matter who the identity is, there's something to understand here is that this visitor, first off, was sent by God. So he's God's representative to Daniel. And so this figure is coming to demonstrate a couple of things to Daniel. And, and those things, I think, are described to us in the clothing and the appearance of this visitor. Number one, it says that he's clothed in linen. Now, linen was the fabric that was used in the construction of the tabernacle. But secondly, it was the clothing that was worn by the priests in the Old Testament. If you look at their priestly garments, they were made of linen. So this idea of being clothed in linen speaks to the holiness of God. And God is demonstrating to Daniel here something a little bit about his character and nature through this visitor. Number one is that God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, that means that he's not like us. It means he's completely different from us, because we are not holy, but he is holy. So everything about who God is is different than how we are, because the prophet Isaiah relates this about God as God speaks. He says there in chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the character of God's holiness separates him out from mere human beings. God is demonstrating to Daniel his holiness and his power here in this moment. But he's also demonstrating something a little bit to Daniel here about not just his holiness, but his glory. And that's demonstrated in the overwhelming presence of this figure. The fact that he was girded with gold and that his face was like lightning and his eyes like flaming torches. This is oftentimes characterized in the Old Testament. Lightning would characterize the presence of God because of its overwhelming brightness and its power. So he speaks to the glory. So what is God attempting to do? Well, God is attempting to remind Daniel of exactly who he is. That he is a holy God. That he's a God that is full of glory. And that in through his holiness and through his glory, that God has been faithful to watch over and to care for his people. And not only has he been faithful to do that, but he has the power to do that. As Daniel watches everything unfold around him in the world, and he sees great military figures rise up and fall and rise up and fall, it would be very easy to, to begin to trust in the human strength and ability of mere individuals. 
But God is reminding Daniel here of his power, of his glory, and his strength. Because, again, remember, he's getting ready to unfold to Daniel all of these difficulties and all of these oppositions that the people of God are going to face. And he wants Daniel to be confident in the fact that because he is holy, because he is full of glory, that he has every bit of strength and power necessary to do exactly what he is intended to do. There's no one in the earth who can overcome God. There's no one in the heavens who can overcome God because he is the only one who is holy. He is the only one who is full of glory. So this powerful visitor arrives on the scene and Daniel is in the presence, not of God, but of God's representative. And this representative of God is carrying that same type of glory and power because he has been sent by God. He's God's messenger to Daniel. So this overwhelming presence comes to, see, to, to, to encounter Daniel. And so I want you to notice thirdly in verses 7 through 11, the appropriate response to such an encounter. This is important for us to note this morning. Look at verse 7. He says, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see it, nevertheless great bread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to deathly power. Are you still there? There you go. To a deathly power, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Now, notice a couple of things here that happen in this passage. It first says that when Daniel sees the vision, that the men who were with him, they didn't see what Daniel saw. Nor did they hear what Daniel heard. But all of a sudden, they were overwhelmed with the holiness and the glory and the presence of God, so much so that the only thing they could do was to run away from it. It was so overwhelming to them. And Daniel, the one who has been a faithful servant to God, Daniel is the one who has been serving God and obedient to Him. Daniel, this man of great character, of great spiritual strength, says the only thing that he could do was to fall to the ground on his face. All the color drained out of his, all, all the color drained out of his skin, and it said he was just weak in the knees. And as soon as he heard the word speak, he just fell on his face to the ground. Now, why is this important? Because this is the appropriate response. To a God who is holy. This is the appropriate response to a God who is full of glory. And now, but why again? Why is this important for us to note this morning? It's important to note it because in modern Christianity, we have such a low view of who God is. You turn on television all the time. And you're not going to find people talking about the glory and the holiness of God. You're going to find people who have dumbed God down to their best friend. Right? Well, this is just my, my, my good old buddy God. And me and him, we're going to get some things done today. One of a pastor friend of mine who preached through Daniel recently, he was referring to some of the guys that you'll see on television. You know, who talk about that God gave them a message. Right, you know, they were. You know, God came to me the other night while I was sitting in the balcony. You know, I was sitting in the living room watching football, and the Lord came and spoke to me and gave me a message. And they just laugh about it, right? They just talk about it. It was just like somebody coming and sitting down in the living room. But every time we see someone encounter 
the glory and the holiness of God in the scripture, we find this same thing. What happened to Saul on the road to Damascus? When he saw the glory of the risen Christ, right? He, he fell down, the bright light shone. He couldn't see. He was blinded by the glory and the power of God. So what happens when we dumb down the character and the nature of who God is to, to this best buddy aspect, but we lose the power of who God truly is? And if we have a God who's just like us, then we have no hope that that God can do anything for us. If we have a God who's just like our best friend, then he's limited just like our best friend. The importance is keeping a proper perspective of the glory and the holiness of God. We don't want a casual and easy God. We don't need another best friend. We need a God who is full of power, full of glory, full of strength. Why? Because that is the kind of God who can defeat the sins of this world. That's the kind of God who can defeat the enemies of this life. It's also important for us because the more we dumb God down, the less serious we think about our own sin. Because if God is not holy and pure and glorious, then sin's really not all that big of a consequence. But it's when we retain that glory of God, we understand that God is very serious about sin because of how holy He is, because of how pure He is. He's serious not only about our sin, but He's also serious about the commitment that He calls us to as Christians. Because again, that high glory of God helps us to understand that as Christians, we are called to live a high and holy lifestyle. Now, I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about pride. I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm talking about the scripture says, be ye holy for I am holy. We're called to live a set apart life. Not that we go around bragging about how great we think we are, but we just commit ourselves to be obedient to Christ in every facet of our life the best that we can. Lord, help us to honor you in everything that we do. So here God is revealing the glory and the holiness of who he is to Daniel in order that he might help him to see things on a greater scale. So what was God's purpose in this encounter? Why did God send this great messenger? Why did God send a messenger that was so overwhelming to Daniel? Why is God trying to teach him this message about his glory and his holiness? It's not to cause Daniel to be terrified, right? Because notice what the, the, the messenger says to him. Verse 10. Daniel's laid on the ground. He's, he's, he's semi-unconscious in the, in the sense of the way he describes it. I fell into a deep sleep. He, he, he's just passed out on the ground. All the colored grains, he's face down on the ground. He says, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So now Daniel has, has set up, and he's just sitting there on the ground. Again, face bowed before this magnificent messenger. And he says, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, I understand the words I'm about to tell you, and stand upright, for I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken these words, I stood up trembling. Notice that even in these moments, Daniel never becomes full of pride. He continues to humble himself before the Lord. And he said, then he said to me, and listen to these words, Do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So this messenger came not to terrify Daniel, but he came to encourage him. He calls him a man of high esteem. He says, I have been sent to you. Do not be afraid. 
But the important part of this encounter was that Daniel had to see his own weakness so that he would then not trust in his own strength. Again, remember, this is a man who had been characterized by obedience to God. And one of the greatest temptations that we face as Christians as we try to live out the Christian life is that at a certain point we get to a place where we think that we're pretty good at being a Christian. And we can have the temptation to be filled with pride because we think that we do read our Bible enough or that we do pray enough. And we can begin to trust in our own spiritual strength instead of relying upon Him. So God was pushing Daniel down to the furthest place that he could get Daniel in order that Daniel would have no place but to look up and to trust on the strength, not in his own life and power, but in only God's power for his life. He needed to see the fullness of God's power to be encouraged that no matter what was going to happen to him, that no matter what was going to happen to God's people, that God had the strength to do what he wanted, when he wanted, and how he wanted. He was doing this to give Daniel comfort in the midst of difficulty. Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our own life where God is going to do similar things to us. God is going to cause us to walk through difficult circumstances. God is going to put us sometimes in places where we feel like we are pushed to the very extreme of our ability. And he does that not to punish us, but he does us to teach, he does that to teach us to trust and rely upon him. That He is our strength, that He is our power, that because He is holy and because He is glorious, that He can do what we cannot. Now that Daniel has been given this vision of who God is and His glory, and especially now that this messenger has told Daniel, don't be afraid, right? Stand up, get back on your feet. The Lord has heard you, the Lord has understood your prayer. I want you to notice now that there is an unseen battle. Again, go back to the beginning of verse 12. He says, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this. And on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So the messenger tells Daniel, a great word of encouragement here, Right? Was that immediately as Daniel began to pray, that God heard his prayers and God sent this messenger on his behalf to come and to relay this news to Daniel. That's encouraging, right? To know, and we know this from other countless places in the scripture, that when we pray, God hears our prayers. I'm sure glad that our prayers aren't delivered to God by the United States Postal Service. I have another story to relate to that of how things just go from place to place to place and never arrive on the scene. But aren't you glad our prayers aren't like that? That we don't pray and it bounces from here to there to here to there and then maybe eventually sometime in the future makes it to God. So the scripture tells us because Christ has done the work of becoming our great high priest that he intercedes on our behalf. Now brothers and sisters, no matter where you are, no matter what time of the day it is, you open your mouth and you speak and the Lord hears your prayers. Amen. So Daniel here is encouraged by this fact that immediately God heard his prayer and he sent this messenger to come to him. But, but then the question is, is that we know that Daniel has been praying and fasting for, for three weeks. Where has this guy been? Perhaps 
he works for the Postal Service. For three weeks, Daniel here has lamented in prayer. Lamented in fasting. And if this messenger was sent immediately on day one, then where has he been? Well, he tells us there in verse 13. He says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then the whole Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So now this is a challenging text, right? To understand exactly what's going on here. Because we understand first that this messenger has been sent by God. So how could he have been delayed in the message he was sent to do? And then secondly, who on earth is the, the prince of Persia? Well, the prince of Persia is not referring here to the, the, the king of Persia, excuse me, is not referring to the actual physical king of Persia. What this messenger is unveiling to Daniel here is that there is an unseen realm of battle that is surrounding everything that takes place in this life. The king, the king of Persia here is a demonic angel who is associated with Persia. Now we know that Satan is one figure. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. So he can't be in, in more than one place at a time. He can't do whatever he wants. He's not all-powerful. But we know that Satan has legions of demons and angels on his behalf. So when we encounter demonic things, it's very unlikely that any of us in this room have ever encountered the actual presence of Satan himself. But we all have encountered the presence of his evil angels and his demons. And so what Daniel is being taught here is that there are demons and there are angels of Satan who are affiliated, in a sense, with the, the princes in the kingdoms of the world. So we're talking about the nation of Persia that had sent the, 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 the Jews back to Israel. But in the spiritual realm, there is a representative of Satan, a demonic presence, who represents that earthly kingdom of Persia. And Satan's desire, again, is to not allow the Jews to do what they're going to do, to not allow them to go back, not allow them to rebuild the temple. And so because this king of Persia, this demonic presence, knew what this messenger was coming to do to encourage Daniel, to strengthen him, and to teach him what God had desired for him to know, he was trying to keep him from getting there. And we understand the fact that there's a spiritual battle taking place, and not just about this one moment, but again for the entirety of the nation of Israel returning back to Jerusalem, that this king of Persia is battling in the spiritual realm against the presences and the powers of God in order to keep God's purposes from happening. For every earthly conflict the church sees or endures, there's a greater spiritual one happening that we cannot see. So Daniel is being taught here about spiritual battles that are happening that relate to earthly evidences. So this messenger tells him that in order for him to get there, he had to battle with this kingdom of Persia, with the king of Persia for 21 days. And the only reason he was able to come was because Michael, Michael is oftentimes characterized in the scripture as the guardian angel or the who would be the godly representative for the nation of Israel in comparison to the demonic representative of the king of Persia, he came to help so that this messenger could continue on on his journey. Some things we need to understand here. 
Number one is that we should expect conflict as we serve God. We should not be surprised as Christians when we encounter conflict. And I'm not just talking about specific spiritual conflict. I'm talking about just conflict in our daily lives. Because if Satan operates here through the kings of Persia in order to, to try to push back the work of God, then we should not be surprised when we encounter people, when we encounter events, when we encounter things in our life that perhaps on the outside don't look spiritual, but are intended to discourage us in our Christian walk. Because Satan, obviously as Christians, he cannot possess us. We Christians are not able to be possessed by demonic entities. So Satan can't possess us, but demons can oppress us. They can do things around us, cause things to happen, that to discourage us in our obedience, in our walk with Christ. So we should not be surprised when we see difficulty, when we see conflict in our lives. We need to also understand that we have a powerful enemy. Satan is a powerful force. But be encouraged today that he is not more powerful than God. Be encouraged this morning that he does not have the power to do whatever he wants. He is limited by the authority and the power of God. Notice here in this passage that Satan's servant, this king of Persia, could not stop God's messenger from getting to Daniel. He could only delay him. The messenger tells us that he would later return to continue in this battle. There's a couple of things about Satan's ploys that we see happening in the way that he operates. But well, again, Satan is always trying to move against God's plan. And so how does he do that? Well, there's a couple of ways that I want to focus on this morning. Number one is that Satan tries to convince people that he is all-powerful and cannot be resisted. Remember, the Scripture tells us that Satan is our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan wants people to believe that he's an all-powerful entity and that they can't do nothing to stop it. We see this characterized when people think, well, you know, I can't, I can't stand against it, right? It was just too powerful for me. I couldn't fight against it. And I don't think we see this particular ploy of Satan in America as much as we do in other countries, right? Because in other countries, people are much more keenly aware of the spiritual realm than we are. You go to third world countries, and it's because they, 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 their religions are already wrapped up in this mindset of there being thousands or hundreds of thousands of gods or deities. They're much more spiritually accepting people. And, and so Satan is very easy to go into those and convince them that he is an all-powerful entity that they cannot resist. And so they just subject themselves to the ploys of Satan. But sometimes we can see this, even in American Christianity, when it comes to some movements who have the idea that Satan control, or that every bad thing that happens in our life is a result of Satan doing something. So your car breaks down, it was a demon. Right? Your neighbor gossiped about you, they've got, a, they've got a demon of gossip that they need to get out. Right? Everything has to be cemented to a demonic presence or power. And what that does is that gives Satan far more credit for power that he does not have. Because he's not all-powerful. 
Is he, he's not unresistable. In fact, the scripture tells us just the opposite. That we can resist the devil and he must flee from us. But I think Satan's greatest ploy, specifically for Americans and for the modern world, is that he has suddenly convinced people that he does not exist. If Satan's not real, then you don't look for his influence and power in your life. You subject yourself to it without even realizing you've subjected yourself to it. I want you to think about the modern conceptualization of who Satan is. Right? And we all know what he looks like, right? He's a little red guy with horns and a pitchfork and a ponytail. That's Satan, right? That's what the world thinks. If you ask somebody to draw a picture of Satan, that's exactly what they're going to draw because he's done a cunning job of convincing the modern world that he is a caricature and a cartoon and nothing to be taken seriously. I can't tell you the number of times on, on college campuses where I've been told that people, they want to go to hell because that's where the party's going to be. Why? Because Satan has convinced them He's not real. He's not serious. There's nothing to be afraid of here. All the while, he has them completely in his control. And Satan is so cunning to the point that like, he doesn't care if he gets the credit or not. As long as he has somebody under his control. He can let them think that they're just living their life the way they want to live. That they're just living their life the way that they were born to live. That they're just doing how they were made to be. All the while he controls them, but all the while they think they're just running their life in their own free will and power. There's an unseen battle. We need to understand that this unseen battle continues to play out today. This was not just happening in Daniel's day. Brothers and sisters, this is happening as we are here this morning. There's an unseen battle that happens when we gather on Sunday mornings. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you're sitting in church on Sunday morning, and you're sitting there and you're listening intently, and all of a sudden you realize you're thinking about the baseball game that happened the week before, and the fact that the laundry's not been done, and the fact that you know it's going to be springtime in three months, and you really need to get the lawnmower fixed before then. Why does that happen? Because there's a spiritual battle taking place. Satan wants to distract us in any way he can. Sometimes it's in the most subtle ways. And so we have to pray. We have to pray that God would give us the ability to see this. Because listen, we're not fighting in the spiritual realm. We can't do that in a physical way. But we can fight in the spiritual realm by doing the one thing that God has given us to do. And what is that? We pray. We pray and we ask God to do his work on our behalf. Now notice, we've seen this unseen battle. Now I want you to notice again, because this is referenced twice here in this passage, that there is an appropriate response when God reveals something to us. God first revealed his presence to Daniel in an overpowering way, and Daniel was completely overwhelmed by it. Now God has welcomed Daniel into this perspective of understanding that there is a spiritual battle and warfare that is happening all the time, all around us. And now Daniel again responds. Look at verse 15. He says, and when, yeah, excuse me, go back to verse 14 for just a moment. 
He says, now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. This is a key part to understand. Why did God let Daniel know about this unseen spiritual warfare? He says, because I'm going to tell you about all these future events that are going to happen. And Daniel, you need to understand that all those, these events are going to happen in the physical realm. That there's a greater spiritual battle happening in ways you can't see that ties in to every single thing that's happening. But to be encouraged, right? Because even if we can't see what's going on, we trust in the power and the sovereignty of God that He is interceding and working on our behalf even in that spiritual battle. Now notice again how Daniel responds. He says, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. Daniel hangs his head down and again his mouth is stopped. And he can't even speak. He, he can't even open his mouth to say anything until verse 16 tells us that this messenger came and touched his lips. He said, I opened and said to him, O Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I've retained no strength. How can such a servant of the Lord talk with my Lord? As for me now, there remains no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Daniel's understanding of this spiritual realm was so overpowering to him that he couldn't speak. I think this is a challenge to us because as Christians, we say we believe in the spiritual realm. We know what the scripture teaches us, right? Right? For we not fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we say all the time, well, we, well, we believe that, we understand that. But sometimes I don't think we fully understand what that means for us as Christians. We were oftentimes tempted as, as humans, and, as, and again, I think as Americans oftentimes, to, to chalk things up to bad luck, to chalk things up to coincidence, to chalk things up to just being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time. There's a spiritual battle happening. And when we encounter people, this is something important for us to realize. When we encounter problems and difficulties, oftentimes we're tempted to look at the person that we're facing. Now we're out on the street sharing the gospel, somebody comes up to us, they cuss us out. There's a temptation to look at that and be like, man, that person is just evil and hateful. We look at things happening in, in government and politics. We look at things and statements said that are just totally against God's purposes, totally evil and wicked and blasphemous things, it's very easy for us to look at that person and feel animosity or hatred to that person. But what we need to realize is, is that person is just a representative of what is happening in the spiritual realm. That Satan is doing everything he can to defeat God, even though he can't. Satan is doing everything he can to discourage God's people. And so when we begin to look past the person to see what's happening behind the person in that spiritual realm, it gives us a whole better perspective of how to encounter it, of how to battle it, of how to take the gospel to that situation. Daniel says he couldn't speak. The one comes to him, and, and now his voice is open. And again, he describes this. He says, 
anguish has come upon me and I have no strength. Daniel was so overwhelmed by this concept that now he sees what's happening in the spiritual realm that he can't even speak. His strength has left him and now he just again stands there in this weakness. But I love the fact that we see this picture here. As it happened earlier when Daniel fell on his face, he was humbled before God. He was overwhelmed with the glory of God. The messenger came, stood him up, and gave him strength. Now again, Daniel has been brought to his knees by God. Daniel had to understand that it would, again, it was not his own power and strength that would do this. He is going to have to depend upon God because Daniel can't do these things in the spiritual realm by himself. God's people can't fight these things in the spiritual realm by themselves. They have to have the power and the presence of God. And so now again, notice verse 18. It says, Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. But it's just be encouraged that when God humbles us, when God brings us to this place, He does not leave us there. He gives us the strength that we need to stand back to our feet and to do the work and the task that He's called us to do. Daniel has been given this understanding of spiritual warfare, but he's also been given this perspective of God's victory. Notice there, in verse 19, he says, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. What an encouragement, right? Because Daniel has just seen this mind-blowing picture of this spiritual battle that's happening. That God's own messengers has been in, in, endeavored in for 21 days fighting against this demonic presence that represented the kingdom of Persia. He was able to come because Michael the archangel came and continued that battle. But notice what he says here. He says, be strengthened, be take courage, and be courageous. And he said, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. And he says, may my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And notice this messenger tells him what he's getting ready to do. He says, do you understand why I came to you? But now I'm going to return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about, is about to come. So this messenger tells him, be, courage, be full of courage and be courageous. In spite of what you've just seen, in spite of how overwhelmed you were, in spite of there's a battle here, there's a, a, a spiritual picture here of happening that there is a battle that's taking place and that we must be strong and courageous and fight in that battle. He's telling Daniel to continue the work and do what God has called you to do. But he also tells him, he says, as soon as I know, I'm going to go back to the fight. Brothers and sisters, the spiritual fight that was happening in Daniel's day is still happening today. Because this messenger said, once the prince of Persia is gone, then the prince of Greece is coming. Because what was going to happen in human history? The Persians were going to be overthrown, and the nation of Greece was going to take over. Again, something happening in the physical realm, but behind the scenes, it was all entirely a spiritual battle. And after the prince of Greece was going to come, then it was going to be the prince of Rome. And then the prince of any other nation, or any other group of people that are fighting against the powers and the purposes of God. This battle of good versus evil continues today. That's why God has given us the power and the strength to fight. This passage we read just earlier before the sermon, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Notice the emphasis there. Not be strong in yourself and in the power of your might. In the Lord and in the strength of His might. <laughs> 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Have you ever thought about the fact, why would God choose armor as a descriptor of what it means to be filled with the power and the presence of God? Why would he choose armor to be that characterization of what we need to endure the Christian life? It's because we are in a battle. We are fighting the powers of darkness. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, what? To stand firm. Stand firm then. Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Scripture tells us that we have been given this ability by God to put on this spiritual armor to fight this battle. Why? Because this battle continues today. We are foolish if we think that we can live the Christian life without battling these spiritual forces. God gave us this for this purpose. You're going to be the, the weakest Christian there is if you don't prepare yourself for the battle that is at hand. And notice what Paul says here in the latter part of that passage. Listen. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. What for all the saints? And this is just a reference back to what we've seen characterized here in the life of Daniel. This angel tells him to stand up, be strong, be courageous, have courage. Why? Because he's being strengthened by God. God here is giving his encouragement in the book of Ephesians that we can be strong and courageous. That we can stand with his strength. But that we're to pray. Pray at all times. Pray for ourselves. Pray for all the saints. There are going to be times when the church seems to be pushed back. But the scripture tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There are going to be times when it seems to be discouraging, but ultimately we understand that the church will reign victorious. Notice there the final verse. It's again another word of encouragement. He says, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. The writing of truth is the message that God is giving to him. It was not made up. It was not uh, a, a message that was contradicted. Notice what Daniel said there in the very beginning in verse 1. He said the message was true. And so now this messenger is emphasizing this fact. What is being given to you, what God is describing to you, is truth. You can stand upon it. He says, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. There's a final encouragement there. Michael, again, was the prince for Israel. You might even call him there, in a sense, their guardian angel. He was the one who, on their behalf, was fighting these battles in the spiritual realm. As Satan sought to defeat the nation of Israel, Michael and the other godly forces were fighting against those spiritual demons on their behalf. There's a battle taking place. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged. The battle may not be over, but the victory has been won. We're going to face difficult days. 
So we're going to face trials. But let us not get distracted by the things that we see happening in front of us and forgetting that there's an unseen battle taking place. I think it really brings encouragement to the Christian life when we view the world from this perspective. Number one, that what we see happening around us is just a evidence of what's happening in the spiritual realm. We can get easily distracted, and especially this time of the year, by politics and governmental demands and things like that. We see political parties saying one thing, doing one thing, fighting against the truth of Christianity, holding up for things which go so far against the Word of God. It's very easiest for to look at that and to identify key figures and people inside those political parties and think of them as the enemy. And yet, don't misconstrue my words this morning. These people do represent evil and wicked things sometimes. We're going to encounter our neighbors. We're going to encounter co-workers. We're going to encounter strangers on the street who, in their person, represent evil and wicked things. But it's a reference to that spiritual battle that's taking place behind the scenes. That's why Paul emphasized this, that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. When we go to try to witness to somebody who, who is just completely blasphemous against God, if we just focus on that person, we'll get discouraged. If we just focus on that person and who we think that person represents, we'll get discouraged. But when we understand that person is only doing what they're doing because behind the scenes they're being controlled by a spiritual force they cannot see or understand, it gives us such a greater understanding of what we're called to do. Because we know the one who can defeat that spiritual power. They can't see it, they can't understand it, but we know the one who can. The second is an encouragement to us to understand this is because ultimately we know that God is the one who's in total control. Overarching this whole chapter, why can Daniel be encouraged at the end of this? When he knew what was going to happen to God's people, when he knew that there's a spiritual battle taking place, that there are angels and demons warring constantly, battling uh, against one another, how could Daniel still be so encouraged and strengthened in his own spiritual life? It was because he understood the sovereignty of God. That nothing happens in this life outside of God's permission and allowance. And so Daniel trusted in that. He trusted in the power of God to do what God was going to do. And that he knew that no matter what was going to happen to him, no matter what would happen with the temple, no matter what would happen with the nation of Israel, no matter what would happen in the world, that ultimately God was going to accomplish his plans and purposes. And brothers and sisters, the same is for us. We can look around at the world. We can look around at the United States. We can look at what's happening in Israel. We can look at what's happening in other countries around the world. And we can begin to wonder, what's going to happen? And I don't know. Will America exist 20 years from now? Who knows? Will the world enter into World War III in the next 10 years? I don't know. But one thing I do know is that America could disappear tomorrow from the map. World War III could break out and they could drop atomic bombs all over the world. If that happens, it was part of God's plan. It doesn't take him off the map. 
It didn't take him by surprise. And ultimately, at the end of all that, God is still going to accomplish everything that he set forth to do. Nothing that happens in his life takes God by surprise. And that's an encouragement for Daniel, and it's an encouragement for us. Let's trust in his power, in his grace, his glory, and his sovereignty. Father, this morning, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you are a God of power, that you are a God of sovereignty. And the Lord, as human beings, we would be lying if we said that we are not overwhelmed at times by the trials and circumstances of our own life and by the trials and circumstances of the world around us. We can begin to question, Lord, why you would allow certain things, why you would do certain things. And we see the writers of the scriptures doing the same at times. We see David, other writers, Lord, pondering and wondering why you're allowing those things. But Father, all of them ultimately come back to the same conclusion. That you are God and they are not. You tell us that. Isaiah. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. We are not God. And we can't understand. Lord, all we can do is trust in what your word tells us. And your word tells us that you are a holy and a just and a sovereign God. That you hold all things in your hand. That you're in control of it all. And so, Father, in those moments where we feel overwhelmed, Lord, help us to just come back to that and to put our trust in you. That when we can't understand, when we can't put it all together, when we can't grasp what it is, Lord, just to trust in your plans and your purposes. Father, help us to be keenly aware of the spiritual battle that happens around us all the time. To understand that, again, we are not battling against people, but against demonic forces. So, Father, that we would also be encouraged in the fact that those demonic forces that we battle against are not more powerful than you are. That you can overcome them, that you can defeat them, that you can conquer them. And that, Father, ultimately, you have the total victory over them. God, direct us, Lord, that we may live a life that is totally pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.